Okay, we are continuing together our study of the New Covenant, and we have said, as we have begun to study the subject of the New Covenant, that um, the Old Testament provides the background for the New Covenant and provides most of the information we have regarding the New Covenant. And so understanding the Old Testament statements about the New Covenant is critical to understanding the New Covenant. And so what we see is that God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And in the implementation of the Abrahamic covenant, God made the old covenant with the nation of Israel for the purpose of implementing and realizing the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The only trouble is, is that uh, the old covenant as a means of implementing and realizing the promises of the Abrahamic covenant had a flaw. And that flaw was, is that it was a bilateral covenant. That is that uh, the old covenant, uh, God had certain obligations and Israel had certain obligations. And if Israel kept up her obligations, then all the promises that God made under the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled uh, in and through the Old Covenant. But of course, we know what happened, and that is, is that Israel did not keep her part of the covenant. And as a result, Israel wound up going into bondage and into captivity. And so the nation was um, um, disinherited by God, uh, divorced by God, uh, because they broke the covenant, and so that covenant was then abolished. But that didn't mean God was through with his people. And in the, in the midst of the deepest uh, time of failure on the part of Israel, with reference to keeping the old covenant, God, in pronouncing all of his judgments against them for their failure to do so, uh, also brought out the fact that he was going to make a new covenant to replace the old covenant. And in this new covenant, the covenant community, namely Israel, would become all that they should have been under the old covenant, but never were, and would realize the complete fulfillment of all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So the purpose of God giving the old covenant was to demonstrate to Israel that she was and that humanity was incapable of saving themselves. And so what God said is I provided the foundation for salvation in the Abrahamic covenant through Abraham is going to come a seed that is going to be the blessing of the entire earth. Um, however, um, it's only going to be realized in and through the new covenant that Jesus makes because Israel was uh, a complete failure in keeping the old covenant. So out of this context of of covenantal failure comes the promise of a new covenant in which there will be no failure. And the reason why there will be no failure is because the new covenant is a unilateral covenant, which means that God himself is going to be the one who is going to perform all the required responsibilities of the covenant and the people are not going to have to do anything. Now, with that background in mind, uh, we wound up last time uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I want to turn there with you. 
Uh, we read the passage, but we want to read it again, and then we want to um, uh, begin to explain the nature of the new covenant. So Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll start reading together at verse 31. Uh, it makes it kind of convenient to be able to remember where it is. Jeremiah 31, 31. Uh, the chapter and the verse number are the same. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, 31. God's going to make a new covenant with Israel and Judah because of Israel and Judah's gross failure to keep the old covenant and as a result of the judgment they were under as a result. Notice Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. So this new covenant that he's making is going to be radically different than the old covenant. He says that the new covenant is not going to be according to or like, or in the same fashion as the Old Covenant. So the New Covenant is not the Old Covenant just kind of fixed up. The New Covenant is completely new and completely different uh, in terms of its um, terms and, and the responsibilities of the parties that are involved in it. And so this covenant is not simply a repeat of the Old Covenant with some slight modifications it is a new covenant. Now he goes on to say, verse 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, I want you to notice all the I wills. Okay? Beginning at verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no man, every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so God puts no responsibilities on the people at all. In fact, he even denies uh, that they'll have a responsibility uh, to teach their brethren to know the Lord. And so um, God says, I will do this and I will do that and I will do the other thing and I will do this and I will, I will, I will. And he doesn't say you will at all. So the thing that we see about this covenant is that these are unconditional promises. God says he's going to do it and he doesn't ask anything out of us in order to um, uh, ensure the performance of the covenant. Now, one of the things that we see about this covenant is that unlike the Noahic covenant, unlike the Abrahamic covenant, unlike the old covenant, those who are in the new covenant, 100% of them are going to be saved people. 
That is, they'll all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Okay? So while the Abrahamic covenant laid the foundation for salvation, all those that were in that covenant weren't necessarily saved because to be in the Abrahamic covenant, you had to be born of Jewish parents and you had to be circumcised. And of course, hopefully you would become circumcised in your heart and thus genuinely saved. But there were many people in the old covenant community who were uh, in the covenant community, but were not saved people. And that's why the prophets were always evangelizing the covenant community and saying to the covenant community, circumcise your hearts, know the Lord. I mean, the prophets didn't go around with the exception of, of Jonah um, and uh, Nahum. They didn't go around evangelizing the Gentile nations around them. Okay, it's true. God sent two prophets to, to Nineveh. But other than that, there was no like worldwide evangelism. Israel was the object of evangelism because most of them weren't saved. In fact, at one point in time, God said that there were only 7,000 in Israel that were saved and all the rest out of several million people were unsaved. And so, of course, that's the reason why Israel constantly failed to keep the old covenant because uh, they were uncircumcised in their hearts. That is, they were unregenerate. And so they were at enmity against God and were not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed could they be. And uh, <clears throat> so they that were in the flesh could not please God. So this covenant is not only a radically new covenant in that it's unilateral. God is doing all of it. But all of those who are included in this covenant are going to be saved 100% of them. And then... Um, the fact that all these people are going to be saved in this covenant, God promises um, salvation to every person. He says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, this is not the only passage in the Old Testament that addresses the issue of the new covenant. The new covenant is new in that... Um, it was something that was brought along to replace the old covenant, but it wasn't new in terms of the fact that its, its principles and its terms had been set out uh, hundreds of years before its implementation. And so the vast majority of everything we know about the new covenant, we learn from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And so when we get to the New Testament, and we start reading about the new covenant, there's very little information in there about it. Because all the information about it was already revealed in the Old Testament, in the prophets. When did the prophets come? They came right at the end of Israel's national history. Okay, They came during the time of 2 Kings and during the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther when Israel was just getting ready to go into captivity, went into captivity, and was coming back from captivity, that's when all the prophets appeared. Okay, Isaiah all the way through Malachi. All that group called the prophets all occurred right at the end of Israel's national history. Um, and so as a result, um, in the context of them pronouncing judgment on Israel for all her failure, they also then pronounced the coming new covenant and the resurrection of the nation of Israel under that new covenant and her ultimate worldwide growth and prosperity. 
And uh, so in the midst of judgment, there was this note of mercy and a future hope. So what we're going to do then today is we're going to begin to look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in an effort to understand um, all that God has revealed to us regarding the uh, new covenant. And so uh, what we need to understand uh, is that oftentimes when we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the new covenant, it is sometimes described in terms of the existing institutions of that day and in terms of the notable persons and events in the life of national Israel. So, for example, they'll talk about Zion uh, when they're really obviously talking about the church. They'll be talking about David when they're clearly talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, they talk about you know, peace in terms of the warfare between themselves and the nations around them. Uh, oftentimes they're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, or they're talking about the peace we have in terms of our warfare against the world and the flesh and the devil. So the point is, is as we read these passages, we need to be careful not to over-literalize them. That's one of the big errors the dispensationalists make as they interpret these passages and that's one reason why they come up with a millennial kingdom with a resurrected David and a rebuilt temple and a reinstitution of animal sacrifices and all of those things because they fail to understand that the promises with reference to the new covenant and the new Israel, which is the church, are couched in the language of the people of that day uh, to uh, aid them in their understanding as they grasped reality during their own life history. And so we must not over-literalize these descriptions that attend the new covenant or are going to wind up with some very foolish conclusions. So what we want to do then is begin looking in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and look at the passages that tell us about this coming new covenant that God is going to make and thus glean and gather all the information uh, that we can about this covenant. So the first passage that we want to look at today, having read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, uh, which of course is the major summary passage, but the first passage we want to look at is Isaiah chapter 54. So turn to Isaiah chapter 54. <clears throat> The first promise that God makes regarding the new covenant uh, that we're going to be looking at is that God is going to be at peace with his people as a result of the new covenant. God is going to be at peace with his people uh, under the auspices of the new covenant to the point that he calls it a covenant of peace. Now, notice, if you will, Isaiah 54 in beginning at verse 7. God says to Israel, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. Now, how did God forsake Israel? Well, the answer is, is that he uh, declared their violation of the old covenant as being um, irremediable. And as a result, he forsook uh, his responsibilities to protect them and to bless them. And, uh, and he, he, he took away his, his protection and his covenantal care, 
and uh, they were taken away into captivity. So they were forsaken in terms of God, no longer extending to them his half of the responsibilities under the old covenant to be a God to them and to bless them. So for he, he forsook them. He says, for a small moment um, have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. So he's saying, even though you've been forsaken and you've gone into captivity, there's going to come a day when I'm going to reverse that and I'm going to remediate that. He says, verse 8, uh, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. Uh, God thinks of 70 years as being a moment. <laughs> and uh, he thinks of them going to captivity and all the horrible things that happened to them as a little wrath. And it is a little compared to hell, isn't it? Okay. And he says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. So God is going to redeem them. He's going to have mercy on them. How is he going to do it? Verse 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth or angry with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Here it is, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. So just like God swore an oath to Noah that there would never be a flood upon the earth ever again, in the same way, he swears to Israel that under the auspices of this new covenant he's going to make with them, that he will never be angry with them again. And so those who are under the new covenant will never suffer the kind of forsakenness and the outpouring of wrath upon them that occurred to the old covenant community. And so he says that in the same way, there's never going to be a flood. I will never be angry with you. And even though the mountains depart, you know, at the end of the world, when the, the, the elements are on, on fire and they melt with fervent heat, he says, my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that has mercy on thee. So the new covenant is the last covenant, okay? And that's why when Jesus came and the new covenant was instituted, that's when the last days began. The last days began um, in the New Testament times because it's the last covenantal period that will ever exist. There will never be another one. So from the time of the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, that whole period is called the last days. And the reason why it's called the last days is because it's the end game of God's unfolding series of covenants. And there's not going to be any more. The covenant we're under now is it. And God says of that covenant that he will never take it away. So the good news is, is that if we are in the new covenant, God will not be angry with us. He will not rebuke us, but he will simply pour out kindness, peace, and mercy upon us. Now he uses here the second person singular throughout these promises. Okay. 
And so he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. He says, uh, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that has mercy on thee. Now, you want to be one of the thee, don't you? Who are they? Well, if you go to Isaiah 55, the very next chapter, we're told who they are. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, come and obtain salvation freely. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Why do you pursue after sinful things? They never satisfy you. They never fulfill you. Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And of course, the eating here and the fatness has to do with the abundance of spiritual blessing. God isn't advocating that we all become vastly overweight. Okay. Verse three, here it is. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So who's he going to make the everlasting covenant with? Those who incline their ear, those who come to him, those who hear the gospel, and as a result, believe it and have everlasting life. Their souls live. And so it is those who come and embrace God's free offer of the gospel. It is those who turn away from the unsatisfying sinfulnesses of life and who uh, incline their ear to the gospel and believe it. It says of them, their soul shall live. And it is with those that he makes the everlasting covenant, even the sure mercies of David. And we just got done studying the Davidic covenant, right? And of course, the sure mercies of David are the promise that David's son would be the son of God and that the son of God would sit on the throne uh, forever and ever and he would build God a house, which is, of course, the new covenant church. So the sure mercies of David are uh, fulfilled in the new covenant, just like the promises to Abraham are all fulfilled in the new covenant. Okay, Jesus is the seed of Abraham and Jesus is the son of David. And so the the that is referred to back in Isaiah 54 that God is going to make this covenant of peace with that he'll never be angry with these people are the people who come and embrace the free offer of the gospel who turn away from that which is not bread and from that which satisfies not namely the sins of this world they hearken diligently to the Lord and they take in that which God offers them, namely the bread of life and the water of life that Jesus provides. And um, they are the ones with whom God makes this everlasting covenant. Now turn please to Isaiah 59. You see the same kind of language. In Isaiah chapter 59, <clears throat> 
in verse uh, 20. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Who's that? Well, we all know that's Jesus, right? He's the Redeemer. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. And so when the Redeemer comes, with whom is God's covenant going to be with? It's going to be with those that turn from transgression. It's going to be with those who have the Spirit of God poured out on them, which of course happened on the day of Pentecost, right? And now everyone who... Uh, is a recipient of the Spirit of God, uh, they are the ones who are uh, in covenant with God. So this covenant obviously is going to be implemented, this covenant of peace, this everlasting covenant, uh, this covenant that's associated with the Redeemer is going to happen when Jesus comes. It's going to be given to those who embrace the free offer of the gospel, who turn from their transgression, and who uh, receive uh, the Redeemer. And those are the people with whom God uh, makes this covenant. And how do I know I'm in the new covenant, the covenant of peace, the everlasting covenant, the sure mercies of David? Well, have I uh, repented of my sins? Have I embraced the free hour for the gospel? Have I embraced the Redeemer who is coming? So the first um, blessing of the new covenant that God promises to his people in the midst of all this judgment that he's pouring out upon them is there's coming a day, even though I'm angry with you now, even though I've rejected you now, there's coming a day when I will be at peace with you. And when I enter into peace with you, that peace will never be broken. And so there will never come a time when God rejects his church. Okay. New covenant Israel, which is us and uh, goes off on some other plan while he sends us off into some kind of captivity. It just isn't going to happen. And we're going to see why it won't happen. And the reason why is because we're all saved. And therefore, none of us are going to apostatize. And the problem with Israel is that most of it wasn't saved, and nearly all of it did apostatize. And that's why they come in their judgment. Okay, so that's the first blessing of the new covenant is that those who turn from transgression and hear and come to Christ uh, are those who have peace with God. Those who do not, of course, have no peace with God. Okay, the second thing that God promises in the new covenant is that he's going to forgive our sins. Now, this takes us to Jeremiah 31, 34 uh, in the passage that we looked at um, and memorized this last week. Uh, it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. So Jeremiah 31, 34. <clears throat> he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So one of the great promises of the new covenant, and the reason why God can be at peace with us, is because he has no quarrel with us, because he sees no sin in us, because all of our sins are forgiven. 
And you know, I know that's really hard for you to grasp because it's hard for me to grasp. When I feel so sinful and I see myself sinning to believe that God doesn't remember those sins is just almost impossible for me to really lay hold of in my feelings because I feel guilty and I feel shameful, okay? I feel unworthy because I, I do bad things, right? And, and so you think, well, God must always be mad at me. He must all, you know, just be ready to lower the hammer at any minute. And yet the promises of the new covenant is that he will not be angry with me, okay? And he will be at peace with me. And he will give me the sure mercies of David and that he will give me his spirit and he will uh, never uh, forsake me or cast me out. Uh, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And to be able to lay hold of that by faith uh, in the face of our own personal sinfulness is something that's hard to do, but it's something that we, we need to do. And that's um, something that we have to constantly preach and remind ourselves of and take by faith that indeed our sins and our iniquities, he remembers no more. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. So the new covenant isn't for sinless people. It's for people who commit iniquity. It's for people who commit sin. Okay. We're iniquitous people. We're sinful people. And yet we're in the covenant. And since we're in that covenant, what does God say about our iniquities and our sins? He forgives them and he forgets them every day because they've been fully atoned for by the saving work of Christ. And that's just so amazingly liberating. And you don't think to yourself, oh, well, because of that, I can go sin all I want. <laughs> when you realize that, you say, Lord, <laughs> help me not to sin anymore. Um, and that's the response of the redeemed heart. And we'll see that in our next point. So God will be at peace with people. God will forgive their sins. Then thirdly, um, one of the promises of the new covenant is that those who are in it will possess humility and contrition for their sins. That is, just because they're forgiven, they don't get cocky and arrogant about their sinfulness. Okay. In fact, because they're forgiven, they become very contrite and they become very humble with reference to their sins, and they become very repentant over them. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. Forgetting lamentations for the moment. Ezekiel chapter 16. In Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning at verse 60, Ezekiel 16, 60. <clears throat> now you'll notice every one of these passages I'm quoting to you has the word covenant in it. Okay? They're all referring to the new covenant. Isaiah, pardon me, Ezekiel 16, 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee 
and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord thy God. There is certainly a place for shame in the Christian life. And the shame that we have is the shame over our own sinful behavior. We ought to be ashamed of our sins. And even though they're forgiven, and even though they're forgotten, that doesn't mean then that we become arrogant and cocky and and, uh, careless about our sinfulness. What God is saying is that when he establishes his covenant with his people, his everlasting covenant, and through it and by it, removes his wrath towards them and forgives them, their response is always to remember what they really deserved and to therefore realize that even though they're no longer liable to go to hell, they recognize that yet they still belong there. And as a result, they go softly before God and live in the fear of God all the days of their life. And so God expects that the people with whom he establishes his new covenant is that they will remember, they will be confounded, they will never open their mouth anymore in complaining against God or being mad at God or feeling like God hasn't dealt with them just right because... They realize what they really deserve from God is anything but salvation, anything but grace and mercy. What they really deserve is judgment. So here you are in the new covenant. God is not going to be angry with you anymore. God is not going to forsake you ever. He's just going to extend to you um, kindness and peace and mercy. All your sins are forgiven. All of your sins are forgotten. And what is your response? Humility contrition, gratefulness, recognition that you don't even deserve any of those things and that you deserve to be in hell and that you're ashamed of having sinned against a God so great and gracious as this. And as a result, you um, are humble, you are contrite, and uh, you strive to do your best to serve and please the Lord not because he is angry with you, not because he's going to get angry with you, but because he has removed all of his anger towards you. Our time is gone. We have more to cover, a lot more to cover, and we'll take it up next time where we left off here. But um, these are some of the amazing gifts of the new covenant. And as we look at them in the Bible, I hope that uh, it fills you with joy and peace and believing and wonder and love and praise and humility and um, contrition and thankfulness. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a great God and a merciful one. Father, you could have lowered the boom uh, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, but you didn't. And you could have lowered the boom again when Israel failed, but you didn't. And every time the people of God failed. You certainly brought judgment, but Lord, in the midst of judgment, there was always mercy. There was always a promise 
of a future and of a hope and of a, of a better condition than that which our sins had brought us into. And so, Father, we thank you that even now we have these wonderful promises of the new heavens and the new earth, of resurrected bodies where this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, of a spirits of just men made perfect, of a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Father, we long and look forward to that day. Thank you that you have certainly secured that for us by your covenant promises. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in holiness, in humility, in thankfulness, in wonder, in love, in praise for what you have provided us with and what you have done on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for taking the initiative to save. Lord, we want to serve you all the days of our life because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.